We're carrying on in our series uh, on uh, in Ezra and Nehemiah. So if you've got a Bible, uh, you can turn to Ezra 8. And we're probably going to read only about 10 verses of it. Um, because I'm not as good as Andy, so I'm not going to spend lots of time looking at lists and telling you how important they are. This feels like it's in the way of some people, so let me just move this back over here. Um, I can look over it now without it blocking Callum's head. Um, <laughs> it's good to be together again, isn't it? It's good to be together to worship God. And so well done for making it here on such a glorious morning. Uh, we have been in this series, uh, Ezra and Nehemiah, for a little while now, and hopefully you're still enjoying it. Uh, I, it's, it's about journeys, isn't it, this story, this, this book? It's about different journeys, people coming from exile back home. And I don't know if you can think in your mind of some films that are like that, or stories that are like that, stories about journeys. They're good, aren't they? We love to see stories about journeys. So, you know, Lord of the Rings is about a journey. It's about them traveling from one place to another. And there's, you know, it's, it's a huge book, isn't it? It's a trilogy. It's really one book. I don't know if you knew that. That's my little bit of nerd trivia. It's really one book that he was forced, Tolkien was forced to split into three volumes and then six sub-volumes, uh, whatever, in order for the publishers to say, oh, yeah, okay, people will read that rather than just this huge, uh, whacking great book. Um, National Lampoon's Vacation, slightly different, so, you know, going lowbrow. I don't, do you know what I really miss? This is a slight aside. I, I really miss pre-watershed versions of films. I don't know if you even know what this is. When I was a child, there would be a film shown, and if it was shown before 9pm, they would like edit out, the, the BBC or whoever, would edit out all of the slightly dodgy bits, you know, swearing or whatever. So like in Uncle Buck, there's a bit where he swears at the end of the film. But growing up, he said, shoot. You know, that was what he said. He said, oh, shoot. You know, and that's all I knew that he said. And you can sort of fill in the blanks for what he actually said. But I miss that. That doesn't seem to happen anymore. They just now put whatever on and go, you know, yeah, your kids, you deal with it. Um, but that's, I, I miss that. National Lampoon's Vacation. It has some choice moments in that I didn't realize until I bought a DVD as an adult. But that's a, that's a film about a family's journey. They're trying to go on holiday, and it's disaster after disaster. The journeys, stories about journeys. We love them, don't we? I wonder if you've seen this film. It's, a, it's about a kind of journey. Cool run-ins. Don't, uh, don't Google the actual story of Cool Run-ins, because it's nothing like the film <laughs> Cool Run-ins. Um, I only realized this, uh, uh, watching this a few years ago, the name of the film, Cool Runnings, obviously it's the name of the uh, bobsleigh as well. But when it, one of them says, it means peace be the journey. You know, so cool runnings, you know. So my runnings, my journey is cool. Like, that only just clicked several years ago for me. Maybe I'm a bit dense, I don't know. Well, I do know, but you know, you don't have to agree with me so wholeheartedly. Um, but this idea of, you know, a peaceful journey. That's what they want. And, you know, we want that, don't we? We want a peaceful journey. Because the Christian life is a journey. It's a quote uh, from 
a book that I said that Megan hates. She doesn't hate it. I think I've clarified that. But a really good book uh, called Uncorinthian Leadership. And he, in it, uh, David Starling says this, as Christians, we're on a journey into the world on mission and through the world on a pilgrimage of holiness. So we're, we're on a sort of a, a mission into the world. So we, we're to go into the world and share the gospel and spread the good news of Jesus Christ. And we're on a journey through the world towards our final destination. And of in, hopefully of increasing holiness and increasing devotion to God. Increasingly, actually, maybe for those last five minutes, I did give everything for God. The next five is questionable, but for those five minutes, I did give everything. It should increase in holiness and devotion. So the Christian life is a journey. That's such a cliche, isn't it? How's your walk with God going? You know, but they're cliches for a reason, you know, because it talks Adam and Eve, the first relationship with God of human beings and God. It talks about he walked with them. He walked with them. Christian life is a journey. It's not, I'm saved, I've arrived, that's it. There's a process that continues to happen. Who said it this morning about your, oh, it's Brian as he was praying earlier, said about you're in the process of saving us. Do you know this about yourself? You're saved, if you're a follower of Jesus, when you put your faith and your trust in Jesus, you're saved. And then you're in this process of, like, he's, in, he's saving you more, until one day you will fully and finally, decisively, absolutely be saved. You've already decisively been saved in one sense, but there's a, there's a further saving that takes place. And so we're on this journey. And as Andy said last week, for many people, the only Bible they will read will be you. And so the, the, the messenger, us going into the world with a message is important but also the messenger, us as individuals, is important as well. How we are shaped and changed and grow. And so we're going to look at a little bit of Ezra's journey. And it's slightly funny, I think, his, uh, what he prioritizes. But we, this is the chapter in which they make the journey, Ezra and his crew, from exile back to Jerusalem. So this is the chapter that they make that journey which Andy talked about last week, about how long it would take and how far it was. And so if you uh, have got a Bible, you can churn, you can turn to Ezra chapter uh, 8. And at the end of 7, chapter 7, Ezra uh, says, I'm going to gather together all of these people, these great leaders, these sort of heads of families, and I'm going to get these people all together and then we're going to go. And so the first 15 verses of Ezra chapter 8 uh, is a list of these names and how many people they brought along. We're not going to read all of those names. We're going to start, we're going to uh, jump down to chapter, uh, to verse 15, sorry. And we're going to see what Ezra does. So this is what Ezra does, he says in verse 15. Uh, let me skip on from that. He says this, I gathered them, all of these uh, clans, these leaders of the clans, I gathered them to the river that runs to Ahava, and there we camped three days as I reviewed the people and the priests, and I found there were none of the sons of Levi. That's the first thing he does as they start their journey. He says, right, we need to get everyone who's coming on this journey together. And he gathers them all, and he assesses who he's got. 
He says, right, there's no Levites here. Let's have a little bit of a problem. So he sends some of the, the people that he's gathered away. He says, go to this guy called Ido. If you're looking for baby names, again, Ezra and Nehemiah, fantastic options. Ido, just throwing it out there. They say, go and speak to Ido um, and, and get him to, you know, give you some Levites to come with us. And so they go and recruit some, about 38, um, and then some extras like helpers as well. And then they go back to the camp. And then so we skip down to verse 21, where Ezra says, then I proclaimed a fast there at the river Ahava, that we might humble ourselves before God to seek from him a safe journey for ourselves, our children, and all our goods. Now, Ezra, I'm not sure entirely my view on this, to be honest. He had said to the king, presumably in a conversation that had gone something like this, the king had said, you know, you're going quite far. It's quite dangerous. Like, do you want some guards or something? And Ezra had gone, we don't need guards. We've got God on our side. Now, whether this was a moment of bravado or a prophetic moment, I'm not quite sure. But Ezra had said this, and so now he's sort of at the camp. He's maybe got some of these people with him. And they said, you know, we, the king not giving us any guards or anything. And he's gone, no, no. I said to the king that we didn't need it because we got God. And so he said, we need to humble ourselves. and We need to pray. We need to seek God and his protection. Because we need to trust God completely. And so it becomes actually a moment, a really powerful moment, where they do fast together. They seek God together for this safe journey for all of them and their things. And it's not a large group of people that are going. As I said, there's about 38 of these Levites that they managed to recruit, plus like 200 extra temple servants. Um, and so in total, there's about 1,600, maybe sort of 1,700 men uh, that are going. Uh, so it's likely, best sort of guesstimate, as they say, about 5,000 people once you factor in like women and children and maybe some sort of like extras that are, that are coming along. And so for this journey that's going to take months across miles, they've got no protection other than this group of men, some of whom, so of that sort of say 16 and a half hundred, 250 are the Levites and the temple servants. So they're probably like, no, no offense guys, they're like the worship leaders, you know. What are they going to do? They're going to fight off a bandit with their banjo or whatever. Um, you know, they're sort of not necessarily the cream of the crop in terms of fighters. Um, maybe they were. You know, I don't know. I'm just putting it out there. I would be useless. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm a big banjo fan. Um, <laughs> but they needed God's favor, didn't they? They needed God's favor to survive on this journey because... Part of what they were doing, if you remember, is they were taking, sorry, this thing keeps slipping off. They were taking objects to beautify the house of God. They're taking articles of gold and silver. Articles means things. Of gold and silver. They were taking like bowls, you know, fancy looking stuff. So if you're, if you're walking along and you've got all of this gold and silver, it's like, wow, this is fantastic looking stuff and you're just like going through bandit country, that's risky. We don't need to be, you know, great archaeological historical minds or even just particularly intelligent to, to get that, do we? It's risky. And so he proclaims a fast for the people. 
Let me go down to verses uh, 24 and 25. And it says this, uh, Ezra says this, Then I set apart um, 12 of the leading priests, Sherebiah and Hashabiah, and 10 of their kinsmen with them. And I weighed out to them the silver and the gold and the vessels and the the offering for the house of our God that the king and his counsellors and his lords and all Israel there had presented and had offered. So this is what they're taking. I mean, we're not going to read it. There's again, there's a list of all of these different things. I'll read some of it because I think it's helpful just to get an idea of the scale. This is what the king and his advisors and all the people of Israel, they'd given to this sort of blessing and decorating and restoring of the temple. And it says this, I weighed out into their hand 650 talents of silver and silver vessels worth 200 talents and 100 talents of gold, 20 bowls of gold worth 100 darics and two vessels of fine bright bronze as, as precious as gold. And I said, said to them, you are holy to the Lord and the vessels are holy and the silver and gold are a freewill offering to the Lord, the God of your fathers. Guard them and keep them until you weigh them before the chief priests and the heads of the fathers' houses in uh, Jerusalem. So he said to them, here's this stuff, which is like thousands, thousands of, of pounds worth of stuff, hundreds of thousands of pounds. Particularly, I mean, I don't know if you know this, gold has gone up in price recently. You, <laughs> my dad was telling me he went to Costco. I don't know why Costco do this, but they sell like a bar of gold. How much was it worth? like 27,000 pound bar of gold in Costco. I'm not sure why you would want that. But anyway, there's like this gold has increased in price. It's this valuable stuff. And he, what Ezra does, he entrusts it. He says, you guys, you're like the, you know, my, my chief guys. I'm going to entrust all of this stuff to you. We'll weigh it out to you so you know how much there is. And when you get to Jerusalem, you can weigh it back in. This is what's been given. Okay, and then this is, this is where Ezra really comes into his own as a storyteller. You know, Tolkien, take note. Verses 31 and 32. Then we departed from the river Ahava on the twelfth day of the first month to go to Jerusalem. The hand of our God was on us, and he delivered us from the hand of the enemy and from ambushes, by the way. We came to Jerusalem, and there we remained three days. I mean, come on. They've traveled, you know, a couple of hundred miles, a couple of months, two verses, he's done. Tolkien, you know, just needs three books. It's interesting, isn't it, what Ezra values as important. List of names, list of all of the stuff that's been given. Oh, we departed on this day. We arrived and then we waited for three days, recovery. In many ways, I think this demonstrates how effective their prayer and fasting was. Because the journey was so boring that there's like very little written about it. He just writes two verses. We left. God was with us, so we didn't get any sort of major incidents. And we arrived. And then we had a couple of days, you know, resting because that's important. Two verses to describe a journey of miles and months. 
Then verse 33 goes on to say that on the fourth day, they gave all of the articles of gold and silver and those bronze dishes, which were pretty great. Uh, you know, there's a whole, <laughs> almost half a verse about a bronze dish and two verses only about the journey. But they give all of the stuff there and it's all there. Nothing's been lost. They've not dropped anything on the way. No one squirreled a little bowl away for themselves as a retirement plan. It's all been accounted for. It all makes it there perfectly. And then it says this. Last two verses of the chapter, verse 35 and 36. At that time, those who had come from captivity, so it's all the people with um, uh, the returned exiles, all the people with Ezra, offered burnt offerings to the God of Israel. Twelve bulls for all Israel, 96 rams, 77 lambs, and as a sin offering, 12 male goats. All this was a burnt offering to the Lord. They also delivered the king's commissions to the king's uh, officials and to the governors of the province beyond the river. And they aided the people and the house of God. They arrived. They were on a mission to beautify the house of God. They arrived. They had a couple of days recovery. They handed over all of the stuff that was to be used in blessing the house of God, making it something that was close to being fit for the presence of God to dwell. Then they worshipped God. They enjoyed the chance to be in God's presence and worship him through sacrifice. They recognised we need to be right with God. Let's offer for our sin. Then they delivered the king's messages. They were on a mission. They were about a mission. They delivered the king's messages to his officials and to the governors of the province. And then they helped those who were already there. This was a small number of people coming into what was already, a, you know, not a huge number, but a, a decent number of people. They didn't arrive and think, hey, it's Ezra and the Israelites. Good band name, by the way. Ezra and the Israelites are here. You can all stand down. We've got it covered. No, they came alongside those who, who were already there. Said, we want to serve God with you and we want to help you because we are together. And that's, you know, that's part of what we, when we talk about becoming part of the church, being a member of the church. It's like, we want you to come in and use your gifts and bless you and bless the church. And that's what it is. You're coming alongside those who are already there. Saying, let's serve God together. Let's do it together. They delivered their cargo. They thanked and worshipped God, grateful for that boring journey. They delivered the king's messages to make sure the work of restoration would carry on. Hey, this isn't the end of it. This is just, you know, the first bit. There's still some stuff to do. And they helped those who were already there. And this morning, I, as I was preparing, I wasn't preparing this morning, as I, this, as I was preparing for this morning, I felt God wanted to emphasize to us or just, just highlight three things that Ezra did in this chapter, uh, and then look at what we can learn from them about us and for us. And so those three things were that he assembled people. Is this working? -ish? It's working now. Uh, 
What can we learn? Assemble, fast, delegate. Three things that Ezra did. The first thing he did was he assembled the people. There's this in verse, uh, chapter 8, verse 15. I gathered them, so that all these great people that he's got, I gathered them to the river that runs to Ahava, and there we camped three days. As I reviewed the people and the priests, I found there were none of the sons of Levi. Ezra assembles, he gathers everyone together, he assesses, okay, where are our strengths, where are our weaknesses? And he realizes we need some Levites, that's where we're weak. There's a, a, sort of a it's often quoted uh, stat or phrase or sort of idea that you're the average of the five people you spend the most time with. Have you ever heard that before? No? Well, let me tell you then, for the first time, some of you, you are, apparently, the average of the five people you spend the most time with. So if you spend time, and this is the point, if you spend time with people who are negative and depre depressing in, in the sense of, like, they're always talking negatively about stuff, I'm not talking about the actual, you know, mental health condition, but if you're, if you're with people who are always like down on stuff, if you surround yourself with those people, you will begin to trend that way. Your life will. If you are around people who are normally encouraging and positive and you know, view the, the bright side of life, as it were, you will start to trend that way. Someone did some research. When I say did some research, they did 30 years of research. So, you know, they are more qualified than I am to say this is true. But they said it's not actually the five people that you spend time with. It's much broader than that. They somehow, they work this out that if your friend has a friend, so your friend of your friend becomes obese, your chances of becoming obese are like increased by 30%. I don't understand how it works. Don't ask me how it works. But this is just what their research showed. This is even more. If your friend has a friend who has a friend who becomes obese, your chances of becoming obese are increased 10%. Again, I'm not quite sure how that works. It's something to do with like normalizing what's acceptable and all of this kind of stuff. You need to be more clever than I am to understand. But you are influenced by those who are around you. That is the point. Does that make sense? Proverbs says bad company Proverbs says bad company corrupts good character. Who is around you? Who do you surround yourself with? Do you know what your weaknesses are? Do you have anyone who can tell you what your weaknesses are? <laughs> I was hoping no one would say that, Steve. Steve said he has a wife. But, <laughs> but actually, like, in all seriousness, I think it was this week, was I said to Megan, what are the two things, like no, the top two things, not the only two, what are the top two things that I could do to be a better husband? and dad. Now I preface it by saying, you don't have to answer straight away. You can take your time and think. <laughs> she had a list. Um, I hope she has got a list. 
good grief. I hope we're together for a long time, so there's, there's plenty of time for me to work on it. Um, and she had some stuff, and I said, okay, you know, I can try and do that. Why not? She knows me better than anyone else, unfortunately for her. Um, so, auntie, what can I work? What do I need to be working on? We need to surround ourselves with people who are going to spur us on to do good stuff and are able to lovingly challenge us in our weakness. So we need to, the point is Ezra assembled his, his group of people together and he assessed what their weaknesses were. So what are your strengths and weaknesses? Who's supporting and stretching you, challenging you? When did you last ask someone, when did you last ask someone, how can I improve? What's my, you know, what, one thing, what could I do? If I did that tomorrow, I'd be, you know, a better servant of God. As a church, you know, Andy and I are the elders of this church. That means we're meant to be like the dads of this church. Like, we're, what that really means is the buck stops with us. So one day Jesus is going to say, listen, you guys, what was all that about? And we're like, we didn't even know that was happening. Sorry. You know, sort of, <laughs> it's too late to sort it out now. But that's, that's what that kind of means. It doesn't mean that we know everything and we're going to be the best at everything. And there's, you know, we're going to have all of the ideas or we're going to know where every weakness of the church is. I'm sorry, Andy. I know that I've shattered everyone's illusion of you. <laughs> even Andy doesn't know everything. But where, you know, if you look around the church for yourself and you think, you think, oh, that's not very good, is it? What are you doing about it? Like, are you praying? Or are you saying, do you know what? I've noticed that actually there's not many people who pray out in tongues in the meeting. Maybe I should start asking God if I could do that or for God to bring people along to us as a church body that will do that. I'm, I'm just using that as an example. That's not particularly, you know, high on my agenda. But that is an example of something that you could be praying for. When there's, you know, when it's Andy one week on worship and I'm preaching, and then the next week um, I'm leading worship and he was preaching, we said we should probably pray for some worship leaders and some other preachers. Because that's what we needed. Pray about it. Ask God for it. Be aware of where we need to grow. Be part of a, a three, you know, a, a core little group. We talk about 3, 12 and 72. This is 72. We're the church together gathered. Jesus, had, you know, had his 72. He also had the 12. Be part of an explore group where this can happen. Be part of a three where people can really know you and go, you said you were going to do this and you didn't do it. Do you have a good reason? If not, do it. But we need to be a bit more robust with one another about challenging and accepting challenge, don't we? Sometimes. Obviously, we you know, speak the truth in love and we want people to succeed and not be condemned. But let's be robust. Accountable. That's the word. That's a good Christian word. God has placed you around people to help and guide them. Jesus wants you there. Assemble. Fast. I'm not going to speak specifically about fasting, 
but this is what uh, Ezra said. He said, I proclaimed a fast there at the river Ahava that we might humble ourselves before our God to seek from him a safe journey for ourselves, our children and all our goods. They pursued God together. They were serious about the things of God. It's him. He's the one who's going to protect us on the journey. When he looked at his people, and maybe, you know, maybe he had some really great fighters in there. But when he looked at his people, knowing that he'd already said, we don't want a guard, he didn't say, right, we need some army people. I want you to go and get me the most elite soldiers you can. I want the, I can't remember what the name is now, the Israeli SAS. You know, they have got a name, I can't remember what it's called. But like, I want that, those people. He said, we need some Levites. We need some people, that are the, the, the worshippers of God, the, the ones who are going to facilitate that because we trust God for our safety. And it's good to have the gifting of the Levites. They're gifted to do that. But Ezra needed, knew that they all needed humility as well. Character is so important. They had to humble themselves before God. A little aside, I'm not going to go into it other than to say this. Character will always be gift. It might not look that way, but eventually, when it's judgment day, character will have always triumphed gift. Now, if you've got gift and character, that is brilliant. But if you have to emphasize one, go for character every time. Every time. You only have to look at minor Christian celebrities or major Christian celebrities as they might be and see how it works when gifting outstrips character. Won't say any more about that. But are you serious about the things of God? Or is it an added extra? Is, uh, you know, I say this a lot. Is Sunday the first day of your week? So it gets, you know, just as a mental shift, Sunday. Best day, match day, I'm up for it. Genuinely, like, you know, this is it. I'm going to have a good breakfast. I want to be on it for worship. You know, just be serious about the things of God. Genuinely, one time I was coming out to preach one day and Megan said, have you had breakfast? And I said, no. And she said, well, you're not going to be preaching your best day, are you? I was like, well, maybe I'm fasting. I wasn't. But, um, but you know, so I, had to, I, I stopped. I ate something. I want to have energy to preach well. You know, maybe a meal's not going to help that, but it's definitely not going to hurt. Sunday gets your best. It gets This gets your best. Jesus said to one of the churches in Revelation, I wish you were hot or cold and not lukewarm. Cause, you know, you ever had a, a lukewarm, you, you, you'd forgot that you, you'd pour that drink of uh, water an hour ago. And you go to sip it, and it's like, whoa, it's lukewarm. It's not nice. Be the goofy one, or the, you know, the weirdo who says, oh, why don't we pray before dinner? Or we're sitting around chatting, let's pray together. Or someone tells you something, well, let's pray about that. Can I pray for you? Rather than just, oh, yeah, no, that is really hard. <laughs> Benny's laughing. Benny is a great encouragement in this. This, you know, this is one of the reasons why we're saying, yes, Benny, lead the prayer team. Because if you say something to Benny, you go, well, let's pray about it. You know, 
Well, yeah, why didn't I think of that? You know, let's make that normal. That's what we should be doing. God wants to demonstrate his grace and power in your life. Is he able to do that? Or do you limit him by being too self-reliant? When you fast, it's a demonstration of saying, God, you are my source of energy. You are the one who sustains and strengthens me. I don't live on bread alone. I live on what you are providing for me. Going on a massive long journey with like a heavy cargo and fasting beforehand is not like the, you know, that's not what Bear Grylls advises you to do. They demonstrated their trust in God to strengthen and sustain them. You know, Jesus was serious about you. He's serious about you. This week, we remember, you know, this is the week, isn't it, when Christians all around the world, mostly, remember, came in to town. Everyone's going, yeah, it's great, yeah, he's coming. Like, less than five days. Kill him! He was serious about you when all that was going on. When he's praying in the garden and he's sweating drops of blood, which is like a legit thing if you, when you're super stressed. He's praying, oh, God, I don't want to do it, but if it's your will, there's another way, can we work it out? No, okay. He was serious about you. That's why he said, I want to give you my everything. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So if, like Gareth said earlier, you look back on this week and you think, well, I certainly didn't give him even half, let alone everything. There's no condemnation. His mercy's new every morning. You can repent if you didn't do it earlier. Say, God, I want to go again. I want to go again with everything for you. Very quickly. Delegate. So Ezra did. I set apart 12 of the leading priests and I weighed out to them silver and gold and the vessels and the offering for the house of God and the kings and his counsellors, the lords uh, and all Israel uh, there present had offered. And I said, guard them and keep them until you weigh them before the chief priests and the Levites in, the, in Israel at Jerusalem. He entrusted others with responsibility. There's risk in not doing everything yourself. I think sometimes we try to carry too many things. and We don't release things to other people or we say that we have. You know, it's no good me going, here, take this. Someone takes it. Take it then. You know, are you going to take it or not? You know. Well, I'm still holding on to it. There's risk in this. You know, the people that were entrusted with this stuff, they could have gone, oh, it's really heavy. We're just lagging at the back of the convoy and we're turning off to the side and now we're our own people with all of this money that we've got. Now, obviously, the people he picked, he didn't just go, you, you look trustworthy. He actually knew who he was picking. But do you trust God enough to let other people do stuff? Or do you always have to do it yourself? Does it have to be done your way? I think that's one of the most difficult things for 
for leaders sometimes when they say, okay, you go for it. Is <laughs> The ideas that you had for that thing, they might go, well, I don't want to do any of those ideas. I've got these other fantastic ideas. You have to entrust. You obviously have conversations about those things depending on level of responsibility. But Andy and I, we want to build a church that is built on entrusting the body. It's a priesthood of all believers. It's the body that needs to do stuff. It's no, it's no good building towards something. And I'm saying this because I'm, you know, I'm not sure we've publicly said this for a while. It's no good it being built to just me and Andy. I'm not good enough. And, you know, Andy can tell you his own reasons for why that's not good. But it's not good. It, it won't work. It doesn't work. You look at, you know, the history of the church, the history of the people of God. It doesn't work when you build to just one person or to a couple of people's gift. It needs to be the church on mission together. So where can you step up in the life of the church? What's the thing that you think, oh, actually, I could do that? I could do that. God has entrusted you with work to be done. Don't shy away or shirk it. He's given you stuff to do. Great Commission, Matthew 28. Go and make disciples. Ephesians 2. He's prepared good works in advance that you might walk in them. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, I worked harder than any of these other apostles. Not me, but the grace of God through me. I worked harder. Let's finish. I suppose I wanted to sort of encapsulate all of that into this phrase-ish. I've written it slightly differently on my paper. Spend time with those who will help you be serious about the things of God to fulfill the mission of God. I could have read that at the beginning maybe and just saved us all 20 minutes, half an hour. Spend time with those who will help you be serious about the things of God and fulfill the mission of God. It's what Ezra did. It's what Ezra, we can learn from him. He, he gathered together. These are the guys. These are the, the, the families. These are the people I want around that are going to be on this mission. We, we need, we're going to need some more of this kind of person. Okay, let's get them in as well. We need some strengthening there. We're going to be serious about the things of God together. We're going to fast and trust God. And then we're, going to, we're not just going to pray about it and talk to talk, but then we're going to act on it as well. And we're actually going to go on the journey that we said we would go on. And we're going to fulfill the mission. We're going to do what God has given us to do. God has brought you to this place, this physical place this morning. To be around these people. You can thank him later. But he's done that so that you can begin to taste and see the goodness of God. And to hear and know the stories of his grace and mercy. So that you can be brought in to carry on the mission of God. To take the good news to a broken and hurt world. That's what's happened this morning. You have not decided to go to church. God has brought you here for those purposes. Let me pray for us.
Lord Jesus, I love you. Lord Jesus, we love you. We want to glorify your name. We want to glorify it by sharing the gospel, the good news of what you have done with others who haven't met you yet. And we want to glorify your name by demonstrating the power of that, its transforming effect in our lives. That next week, more of us would be able to say, you know what, I probably gave most of my week to God this week. Maybe it wasn't quite everything, but it was most of it. Lord, we want to be people who are intentionally, actively trying to give everything to your kingdom's course. Fill us with your spirit that we might be provoked to do that. We might be energized to do that. That we might work harder than we thought we could because of the grace of God at work in our lives that we might glorify the name of Jesus and fulfill the work that you have prepared for us that we simply have to walk into. In Jesus' name I ask these things. Amen.